0: Welcome to the first episode of the fifth series of the Women in CX podcast, a series dedicated to real talk conversations between women in customer experience. Listen in as we share our career stories, relive the moments that shaped us, and voice our opinions as loudly as we like about all manner of CX subjects. I'll be your host, Claire Muskep, and in today's episode, I'll be talking to a seriously brave community member from the United States. Let me introduce you to today's inspiring guest, She's a CX analyst and strategist specializing in the retail sector. She started a career as a consumer insights intern where she built an entire voice of the customer and CX program from the ground up. And now with her experience in many facets of consumer analytics research, strives to help businesses understand customers from a holistic point of view, using quantitative data to tell stories and help stakeholders see the value of CX. Her personal story is one of incredible resilience, and I'm so proud of her courageousness in sharing it with us today. Please welcome to the show CX sister Alex Acosta. Hey Alex! Hello, how are you? I'm wonderful. Welcome to the Women in CX podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored. And welcome to everybody listening along as well. I'm like super excited to have Alex in the studio today um, because uh, we have been spending quite a bit of time together of late, haven't we? <laughs> we have. In the, in the community, um, Alex has been um, on two panels with me in the last month, <laughs> mm-hmm. talking about transformation and digital and um, also, yeah, you're prepping for your masterclass on data. Yes, it's been a busy summer with Wix. yeah thank you so much have you found it so far absolutely love it just
1: super grateful for the opportunities and also it's awesome to even do it like i don't even think i ever pictured myself at my age doing this stuff and kind of being like a voice that people go to for questions around cx like it's really done wonders for my self esteem.
0: <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that. Well, that's amazing. But also, just like recognizing, actually, you are a super bright voice in our community and you have like a, a depth of expertise around customer experience and data that I think like not many people do. So, actually, you bring so much value with those responses that you give around those questions because you live and breathe how to use data to tell stories and and influence senior stakeholders in a massive organization. And not many of us really understand how to do that. So so I think that's a great kind of place to start is um, to tell uh, the listeners a little bit more about how you found your way into CX and where you are today and working for this massive organization
1: yeah sure so I pretty much knew I wanted to do market research consumer insights from my first market research class in college Um, I was a marketing major and you know there's a million different ways you can go with marketing so I interned a ton from freshman year all the way up until senior year and just did a bunch of different things PR social media like anything you could think of in the marketing space and none of it really ever like struck me as something that I would wanna do for the rest of my life or make a career out of. Um, And I got super lucky applying to an internship um, that was gonna be the summer after my junior year Um, and it was digital marketing internship. So you think like SEO, things like that. Um, And they kind of switched it at the last minute and I went in for my interview. First person I sat down with was like, hey, just so you know, we're switching this to a consumer insights internship instead of digital marketing. And so since I already had in my head that I wanted to do consumer insights market research work, I was obviously thrilled to hear that. And I was like, that is no problem at all. Like I actually love that way more. Um, So I got that internship and I did that over the summer and it was like an internship program so you know a group of people, we were all in different areas of the business, but that was at a smaller fast fashion retailer. Um, I did that throughout the summer and stayed on part time throughout my senior year Um, and then I got offered full time to stay there as soon as I graduated so I started working one week after graduation I gave myself a week to move to a new apartment and that was about it. And then I've been working full time ever since then.
0: Wow, <laughs> uh, how old are you now?
1: I'm 26. Yeah. So that was when I was like 22, 21, 22 is when I started. Um, so about five years of experience now, and I stayed there, um, for about three and a half years, almost four years, and mm-hmm. a bunch of different disciplines that have to do with CX, consumer insights, personalization, CRM. Um, and really just started exploring different areas. So I have a specialty with data and analytics um, and it's really interesting to be in the community, honestly, because there's so many different facets of CX that I never even thought about because I've just been all data all the time and like storytelling and doing strategy based on insights and stuff. So um, I've been able to learn a lot, but um, yeah, I had some experience with CRM personalization. So like email marketing, SMS marketing, direct mail, based on customer behavior, doing a lot of consumer analytics that have to do with our actual databases. Uh, and then when I started at Dick Exporting Sporting Goods about, um, two years ago, almost I was brought in, um, to the ship to home fulfillment team under the e-commerce umbrella as like a strategist that, they basically wanted to hire me on to bring the customer lens to what that program was doing. So like, does it make sense for us to offer same day? Does it make sense for us to offer these different fulfillment options? Like what matters the most to our customers when they're ordering from us online? Um, And I kind of like wanted to work at Dick. So I was like, perfect, I'll come in and do this. Um, But ultimately had my sights set on the CX team and consumer insights team. and so. Um, My leaders were amazing and helped me kind of move over after a year into the role that I'm in now, um, which is a quantitative analyst on the CX team. And I handle pretty much digital e-commerce and fulfillment. So buy online, pick up in store, curbside pickup, ship to home, pickup, and then the digital browsing experience on the website primarily.
0: But we're a collaborative team, so we all do everything. (laughs) Oh, it just so many things resonated with me there. Um in terms of like career journey. Um, so I did a master's in marketing and it, I had a really similar moment, um, which was the consumer behavior module that um all the aspects of marketing, I thought we were really interesting, but that was the one I was like, whoa. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, um, it, it was the one I got the best mark in because I guess I was also so interested in it and and for me I think my germ of um, customer experience perhaps uh, as I know it to be today began with thinking oh if you can really understand co- consumers and their needs and their behaviours actually you can build things like propositions and services like to actually you know, meet those needs and the resulting behaviour has this like really positive impact on business and I just found that fascinating but also really... Yeah similar that um I I didn't do an internship but I worked my way through college or university as it's called over here too um and I started as a waitress at this big company and just loved serving customers absolutely just it was you know this other thing I think which was the germ that sparked my love of what I do today Um, and I worked my way up to be a deputy general manager so once I graduated from my master's and the graduate schemes came up they offered me to stay on in a similar way so i ended up walking straight into a general managers job at 23 as a graduate um and yeah just like fascinating how the path that we take kind of serendipitously can lead us to to where we are and i just love the bit of the story mm-hmm. where like they made a mistake <laughs> or they swapped yeah. you know out you know I wasn't even supposed to be interviewing for this but it ended up being the thing that you really wanted to do like yeah. that that's that's a bit of magic, isn't it? That's a bit of alchemy.
1: <laughs> it was. It felt like fate for sure. And I definitely agree with you about like the serving customers thing as well. Like I worked in retail all throughout high school and stuff, and I loved being like a stylist for people and just like making people feel good about themselves and like actually serving customers. Like I love doing that. I worked in one restaurant as a hostess, and I absolutely hated that. Like it was just not. <laughs> like the service aspect that I really, really loved. Um, And yeah, just seeing things kind of all like mashed together. And I'm just such like, I'm just that type of person that really values like human connection and, and that type of thing. And really wanting to actually like what sparked my passion for it was literally reading comments from customers at that internship and being like, we gotta do something about this. Like we are not serving them correctly. And that led to me literally building their entire CX program as like an entry level associate and doing all of that myself. And then being able to see all of that stuff actually come to action and, you know, changes of processes, changes of the customer service model and what we're training people to do inside of stores. Like, it's just amazing to see how feedback that you give to companies they're doing it correctly can inform all of these things and actually,
0: you know, pay off for everybody. OMG. So like, literally, this is pretty much the same story I have. So my first (laughs) job in um, the head office was in data and insights. Like, Mm -hmm. first one off the bat. And I wasn't so good with the numbers the way that you are because... I don't think I was built to be an analyst but what I could do was tell the stories and spot the root causes so when I was like doing reporting for the like executive team like this massive company you know board of directors I'd quite often get things like the numbers the wrong way around but what I was saying about why
1: (laughs) the Mm -hmm.
0: um, what we needed to do differently about it to fix these problems for customers because I had operational knowledge and understanding as well Um, Meant that like what I had to contribute as someone working in data and analytics um, was, you know, more than just crunching numbers. Um, so, yeah, like I remember like one report went up to the executive team and like they got the nine and the eight the wrong way around. So they thought the mystery shopper had fallen off a cliff. But it was just no, because <laughs> I found out I'd have dyscalculia, which is like the number of the equivalent of dyslexia, but with numbers. So I was never meant to be an analyst, but it did you know, catapult me off into the direction that I, I ended up going to, which was more around um, how to design services and propositions. So that's super interesting. So I'm going to just like dig a little bit more around um, this kind of like what you do and how you do it because i think the audience would love to know more um about what it's like to be a quantitative analyst in a cx team like what kind of data do you deal with what do you do so
1: (laughs) so primarily we focus on survey data um and we have so much of it i mean we get hundreds of thousands of responses i think it's july 20th right now i think we're up to over 2 million responses across all of our surveys. So obviously that is a big data set to analyze and socialize. Um, So we focus primarily on the feedback that we get from our customers. um, And basically just synthesizing that and telling it to, you know, the relevant teams. Um, We kind of have a much more mature program to where, you know, in my past when I was just starting out with my um, CX program that I built myself, it was super easy to get these like low hanging fruit of experience that we could go and have like quick wins, you know, and just be really agile. Um, our, Our program's more mature. So it takes data from all different places to kind of start telling a more holistic story rather than like affecting change based off of one singular metric, for example. And I think that's a good thing, to be honest. I think it makes a lot more sense, especially at a Fortune 500 company, to be looking at things from this holistic point of view and actually bringing other teams along um, for the ride on analytics, projects, and just like socializing things, reading things out, and actually making a strategy based on those insights Um, because it's not so simple as, you know, people who wait in line for over 10 minutes are 250 basis points less satisfied than people who wait in line for less than five minutes you know so like that's something super easy we can go and say like okay let's start monitoring checkout speed let's go talk to the associates in the stores and see how we you know get some more efficiencies in cash wrap area like we're talking about an 850 store fleet and you know Millions of dollars in sales and millions of customers that are coming to us from all different angles and how do we start to break that stuff down and really improve experiences. While also maintaining business goals and initiatives at the same time, so we pretty much like I said focus on survey data for like the bulk of my day to day job, Um, but for the more strategic initiatives, we are definitely pulling in contact center data and like foot traffic data, credit card data from vendors, like all these different things, athlete or customer data that actually has to do with their behavior. So how often are they shopping? What's the market basket analysis on these people? Like, what are their demographics that we get from, you know, other vendors? So all of that stuff is matched up to tell the holistic story. And, you know, we kind of are aiding and, doing that um and it's really really fun and interesting to work on for sure
0: is your dog got a squeaky toy
1: yeah she does I'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> she's always sleeping in the middle of the day and of course today she wants to be awake
0: <laughs> oh no it's so defined i we saw fair babies aren't they so um, definitely yeah. definitely can sympathize like more, on most podcasts you can hear my cat's collar jingling because small is always around um, but she seems to be especially wanting attention when i'm on zoom maybe it's a, a connection um so just to let go kind of row back a little bit into um uh, again just things that resonated with me is that you know when you work in a massive organization sometimes that low hanging fruit or more obvious stuff Can have a huge impact right because when you're talking about millions of customers thousands of stores um hundreds of thousands of employees being able to use data analytics insight customer experience thinking to say you know if we do go and fix that problem over there that we've been ignoring for a while like the it's a lever that can have a massive amplified impact um, so I remember like I did a project uh, when I was in my retail days and uh, we were able to generate a return on investment of 4 million quid with mm-hmm. identifying what was important to customers and what wasn't. And actually one of the service touch points that required a lot of labor what um, wasn't important. And we were over-investing in this thing that we could immediately save a whole load of money by not doing and reinvest in areas that were were lacking. Where customers weren't unhappy uh, with things like it's really random things like because the queues were so bad because the way that they put the menus in the cafes meant that you couldn't choose what you wanted until you got to the end so people were standing there waiting in the queue line like looking up and making their decision whilst they were at the tiller taking twice as long as they needed to (laughs)
1: Yeah. so
0: move the move the menus to like earlier in the journey or like more men- versions of a menu and people can have already decided to speed up the queue speed and actually there was a, se- a massive sales spike as well because people weren't looking at the queue and turning away at peak periods because it just kept moving right. like fascinating right um, so being able to find, you know, identifying through um, insights, data, observations qual, quant, you know whichever way you do it um, when you work in a huge organisation the impact can be massive um, but also like super super interesting stuff is like, you know, back to this ROI thing, I um, mean, you know, by fixing something, you can generate a huge return on investment, not necessarily of a CX program, but of changes in customer experience. And I think that's something that people tend to not understand. They're spending a lot of time trying to justify a customer experience program or a VOC program, or like, you know, having this insight in the first place and not spending enough time actually implementing change and measuring it and seeing what the return on the change is. Um, So admittedly, you need to have um, the ability to capture (laughs) the data, but it's not everything. And and what you were talking about there really spoke to me uh, about, um, you know, being able to pull in different sources of data, especially in retail, you know, saying, so we've got these customer metrics over here, but actually I'm not really just looking at those in isolation and trying to drive improvement in them. I'm looking at footfall. I'm looking at basket size. I'm looking at changes in um, shopper behaviour. Looking at store performance. Looking at cost uh, profitability of stores. So for me, like when we did these big projects, um, like I, I think kind of in the past, like we 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 just been thinking, oh, you know, you just need to drive satisfaction, and that will show that we've done the job that we needed to do because that's the metric that we're being measured on, and, and our marketing division is for customer experience is this like satisfaction thing. And it didn't take me long to realize like that doesn't, you know, wash with anybody. Great, great, nice. But what's the impact on the commercial aspect? So I started to do projects where I enlisted the help of people in finance and (laughs) analytics that could like do things like measure store performance of a store that I'd implemented a load of, or, or, or in fact, sometimes only a couple of initiatives in and looking at the impact on all of the other things that actually the business did care about far more and, and looking at that against a control store of exactly the same shape and size with no change in. And then being able to go, now you can see the impact of that improvement on um, all loads of things. So you know, it might've been a, a an initiative to improve checkout experience, but actually it was through uh, improving um, employee capabilities, and that was the solution. And actually, that increased productivity, it improved queuing. It actually meant um, a cost saving overall, or reduction in, um, yeah. So, so I just think I just think this is like the future of this question that people are always kicking around. How do we improve return on investment of customer experience? Like, it's the it's the wrong question? It's how do you create awesome data analytics that when you're creating changes you can directly demonstrate the impact on stuff that the business cares about and that's a very different conversation so not kind of asking how do we prove that customer experiences is going to you know have be a worthwhile investment and create a return it's just too big and too broad it's customer experience in the right place fixing things innovating in the right areas because you're listening to customers measuring the impact of these smaller initiatives that is what demonstrates the impact what do you think
1: totally totally agree and I think it's really important too like we have a couple of initiatives that it takes a long time to even test them to your point of like let's just get a test out and let's have two groups of stores for instance like for us to get to significance and like feel really good about the outcome of that like we have a couple of tests that have been running for a couple months at this point, you know, and it's like also patience that comes along with it of like, okay, we took this insight about greeting, for example, and um, I've talked about this to you a couple of times. But but the audience doesn't know. Tell the listeners. Yeah, the listeners doesn't know. (laughs) don't know yet. (laughs) Um, So we basically learned, you know, just by looking at a question on our survey, were you greeted at any point during your experience? And this is specifically for stores. Um, And, you know, looking at the results of that and looking at people who said no that they weren't greeted or yes they were matching that up with other scores that they gave us on assistance friendliness of our associates availability of our associates helpfulness things like that and really learned that our customers that come into our stores don't just want to be greeted they actually want to be engaged throughout the entire process and checked up on multiple times while they're shopping, offered a fitting room, helped me out with sizing, like they really value the knowledge and helpfulness that our associates can actually provide to them. Especially in the actual sporting goods, which we call hard lines, which would be like equipment and stuff that you're buying like People have questions they want to know like what do you recommend And you know some of these things can be pricey like they want to feel good about that. So we're testing out some different things with breeding specifically and it's going to take months for us to get the results from that back or you know another on the other hand for online experiences we have this commitment to sustainability for our brand and so we've been thinking about you know how do we reduce plastic for example um and so testing out like not putting plastic clear bags in our online orders what does that do to the condition of the product when it gets to the person do they care about it from a satisfaction perspective like did they even notice that we didn't have it in there. Um, you know, a bunch of different things, but that also takes weeks for us to implement you know like that's a process change. Um, that you kind of have to plan for and measure for a while, um, but it's really awesome because whenever we get that back and the testing period is over we're looking at. Customer service call, like did call volumes that have to do with free shipping out orders or damages, did they go up during this time period? And was it for was it the same orders that we took the polybags out of? You know, things like that where we can really start looking at different areas to be able to prove a point, which is, you know, we either want to do this thing or we don't want to do this thing. Um, but it definitely takes patience and a lot of collaboration. I think that's one of the best parts about starting with an insight from the CX team is like okay, now the really fun stuff starts where we can actually bring in all these different teams and get something off the ground to test and learn and really make a change. But it takes, you know, more time in some cases when
0: you're talking about these big, like overarching strategic projects. Mm. Well, super interesting. I think the, the plastic bag example is a really good one. And I remember it, um, when I was working in supermarket retailing, it was at the time that the government were going to be introducing... A charge and a levy for plastic bags and the amount of effort we had to go into like figuring out what, how much to charge and like how to how to display them and stuff because yeah you know, it's, it's back to that massive organization thing again isn't it but you know as well as the environmental benefit of removing plastic from online deliveries like think about how much that actually costs as well yes. so that like, if if you can fi- if you can you know tell the story that actually customers really don't care it doesn't have a negative impact it doesn't impact impact their overall product perception or satisfaction with their experience and doesn't damage anything then that's like the example I said about the um the touch point I found where customers didn't really care about it you remove it there's a massive benefit benefit to it um but the, the thing about store greeters as well like I remember having like a really similar question around that um because Walmart had rolled out like greeters at the front of every store and we were like trying to figure out like why are they doing that like does it really have like a, an impact or, or a positive difference um and you know trying it because actually we thought we should because our brand was better than theirs or like you know, customers expected more from us because we were more of a premium brand that we couldn't be like outmatched on service but it didn't make any impact at all it was pointless and like you said you know be your example you know you're talking about hard lines and much more emotional investment in the goods that you're buying rather than picking stuff off the shelves that's why it definitely wasn't important to us but you know like why waste money at the front of store when like just saying hi to people doesn't actually have any impact at all save that money invest more in the, the employees that are on the shop floor being able to help people make decisions because that is where it is important so those like financial trade-offs that invariably happen in any business being able to have the the insight and the data to then help make those decisions again is critical and that's another challenge that six comes across is um the trade-off is just you know well that's nice for customers but we can see there's like we're going to make a loss here or something you know <laughs> right. You know, right. being able to help to balance that trade-off of well actually there's a win-win over here we can take something away or deliver your cost saving but we need to be investing more over here so there's a net opportunity to like take cost out put a bit of cost in you've still got a net overall benefit but being able to show through data that you that's the the reality of it is is super important and i just don't think it happens enough um and uh, yeah, so, and I was just gonna say about like the time it takes to do some of these things. I guess like, you know me now as a startup founder and you know how scrappy I am. Yeah. <laughs> I was just gonna say to the listeners, like not to be put off uh, by having to to do everything with belts and braces the first time. If you need to get buy-in to being able to test and learn an experiment and set up, you know, data Oriented experiments with resource and teams. It, you know, you, talk, you said you're a mature organization, right? You're already pretty advanced in this kind of thinking. If your business isn't there yet, like what I did back in the day when I was the first person with customer experience in my job title, was just to set things up as, in as rudimentary way as possible. So I would um, ask for permission in a single location and set up a set of metrics that actually were manually tracked by the store manager. Um, Well, not the store manager because they were too important, but one of the store management team that they would then report in and asking the same metrics to be tracked by one of the store management team in a store that was similar. And it didn't take any analytics team. It didn't take, just like that kind of initial stage of trying to get buy-in because some data is better than none for sure. Um, And that really helped me get buy-in to why we should maybe expand this to more than one store. Let's put it in um three stores. And then that got me the buy-in to put it in a region that eventually we test and learn and figured out what worked and what didn't and what had the biggest impact. And off we went and rolled it out across a nation and hey presto so four million pounds return on investment. Like you know, that that wasn't um it didn't I didn't start like out of the gate with the ability to do those things. It was a, a process that happened over time so um yeah yeah I I love that you
1: said that because I think yeah it's so important to like start small if you have to you know what I mean and be okay with that because I do think a lot of us especially in the community we are ambitious girls (laughs) and we just want to go 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 and I think it's okay to just say like it's going to take some time it's not a failure by any means on anybody it's not something to you know be upset about it really is just like Let's be grateful that we can even do this one store or like th- these couple of swim lanes on our website. Like, you know what I mean? Just see what happens and then pivot. And I think that's so important, especially in CX. I mean, it's pretty new. It's pretty new discipline to everyone. And I think everybody's still learning. And I think it's just the more you can learn, the more data you can get, the more you know insight you can you know, get your hands on, the better. And any progress
0: is good progress. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. It's hard though, right? And maintaining the resilience to keep going when, you know, we really (laughs) really want to do. And again, to anyone listening, I'm sure you'll identify with this. Is like, I want to fix the whole end-to-end customer journey. And I've got this this tool that we've paid a fortune for that's giving us the data. And in order to justify that investment, I need to fix everything. But even in that situation, it's still... Pick something, start small, and and scale, and yeah, just like stay scrappy. <laughs> yeah, and find and find a way. Um, hmm, yeah, I don't, I don't really know where to go from here. Like this is this to me, I think you know, it's challenging. It's challenging. It's challenging the fact that CX isn't really a discipline anymore. It was for a short, brief moment in time, probably about five years ago, where you could take a framework and apply it and it would work in most places because I think industries have changed so much. Consumers have changed so much. Technology has reshaped everything. Like the way you have to approach even defining what customer experience means in your organization is different now everywhere. Being part of this community I think is really showing me the reality of of that and you know where the power core sits in the organization who uh, what the key metrics are that they're trying to drive like it's more like i think becoming a creative problem solver becoming an awesome leader who can influence and basically building up this really diverse set of tools like for, for, for me if i think about my practice yeah you know, i sort i of started off you know doing data and analysis i know how to do research i know how to um do business cases i know how to design project plans and deliver um project management things like this isn't cx this is like general skills that are useful everywhere like i know about digital technology i understand how agile works like actually the cx leaders of the future aren't these eye-shaped depth experts about customer experience they're these t-shaped leaders who know a little bit about a lot of things and can apply themselves and have the the depth in understanding what different tools and approaches are available to take this customer experience lens and shine it in different places and 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 as i said that's why i really value your contribution and think you're so special because you've got this like depth in data analytics and um And and that would, to me, be, you know, one of the things that we all need to get better at in the future, even understanding how data and analytics work or even not you being an expert personally, but being able to find a team who can do that for you and, you know, enlisting them um, to be part of your projects or your program is the key to change. By the way, I could geek out with you on data all day um, (laughs) and on customer experience more broadly and wax lyrical about, like, what needs to change. But we had a second purpose so if if you think that was kind of part one of the podcast was your career story and i'm talking about cx data retail all kinds of like interesting things i think this is a very definite part two of the podcast and um the reason this came to light was that there's a question i always ask all of my guests is listeners regular listeners will know is was to tell me about a change a challenge or barrier you had to overcome to be the woman that you are today and when um, we create these podcasts, we spend time with our guests in advance and we kind of kick around these questions. And what you told me um, in our initial podcast pre-meeting was something that I knew that we needed to talk about in front of an audience because it is just so important. So I'll leave my position in there and kind of just ask you that question that I asked you in our pre-meeting and let the conversation go wherever it's gonna to go today, of what was the challenge or barrier you had to overcome to become the woman you are today.
1: Yeah, thank you. So um I had a pretty tumultuous childhood. Um, and I think you know, one of the major things that I've overcome, or maybe two of them, um, if you think about them as kind of one. Long string of things is overcoming abuse in my childhood, which then turned to an eating disorder that I was actually um, put into out, intensive outpatient treatment for when I was 16. Um, so, 10 years ago now, I graduated from treatment, um, 10 years, and that's kind of crazy to think about. Um, but I basically um, underwent some grooming during the abuse that causing to gain weight as a kid, and basically made me terrified of living in a larger body because I associated that with the abuse that happened. And so through that, I developed anorexia um, pretty badly and pretty subconsciously. So my parents would bring it up because I would be sick every single month and go to the doctor and I would be losing like three, two or three pounds every time I went to the doctor and this was monthly. so the weight was just like dropping off me. And obviously at that point, I'm like 15. So I was the same height that I am right now. And by the time I got put into treatment, I was about 108 pounds, which is severely underweight. And it would have definitely been a lot less than that if they hadn't have intervened on me. Uh, but I really didn't even consciously count calories or be super restrictive with what types of food I was eating. It was more so a control thing of like, just not going to eat until dinner and then we had dinner every single night as a family around the table like that was there's no excuse we were all there um every night and so that was kind of the one meal that i would eat in front of my family because i didn't want them to know that i was struggling with this um and i honestly didn't know about the link to the childhood abuse trauma until i was in treatment and you know i remember the first day i got there i was obviously pretty mad at my parents and my doctors forcing me to go and just not fully understanding how detrimental I was being to my health at that time. Um, or even really fully understanding that I had an eating disorder. Um, but I remember, you know, my therapist that I met with the first day was like, Just so you know, you're not going to be discharged out of here until you're 128 pounds. And I burst out into tears like the second she said that. And I was just full of rage. Honestly, I wasn't even sad. I was really, really angry and scared to ever be 128 pounds, which now thinking about it is just so insane (laughs) to feel that way. Um, But that's how I felt. And I was really, really terrified to even have to face... um, the abuse. It was one of those things that, you know, I never really got therapy for prior to being, um, in treatment for my eating disorders, nothing that I really ever discussed, um, with like a licensed professional. I talked about it with my family and my mom sometimes, but even then it was kind of just like something that I kind of wanted to move on for, move on from. And I, didn't realize how much it was affecting other parts of my life until this eating disorder came about, and I had to go to treatment and actually kind of figure that part out first. So, came to the realization through a lot of therapy within treatment that, you know, the trigger for the eating disorder was because of the abuse and because of the association of living in a larger body to the abuse that happened to me for years. Um, and so, once I graduated from, I call it graduated, but as discharged from treatment um I felt really good you know I felt really positive about things and I was still relatively skinny person I was like 120 pounds they let me out you know when I was 128 and I was on like this really insane regimen when I was in there where we were eating like 3,500 4,000 calories a day so it was you know hospitalization like trying to get you back to a healthy weight and like teaching us how to feel about food and like, get away from fears and stuff like that. But obviously eating 4000 calories a day is not sustainable for most people. Um, So I kind of, you know, was up and down with my weight and really like, I felt good about myself, I felt good about where I was at that time, Um, and didn't really struggle with it too much. But I always had disordered behaviors, even if I wasn't necessarily restricting to the point where it was a relapse and trust me, I've had relapses before, Um, but it was things like I developed orthorexia instead. So in trying to get some semblance of control after this treatment, um, I became obsessed with clean eating, quote unquote, whatever that means. Checking the ingredients on every single piece of grocery that came back in when my mom got back from the grocery store, like being really, really crazy about not having preservatives and stuff like that. And just like really being hard on myself and being super controlling to the point where it was affecting my family as well. Like I was talking to them about stuff that they were eating and making them feel bad about their choices with food and exercise because I was so crazily obsessed with health Which is obviously, you know, not being that healthy at all when you get to that level of of obsession so gradually kind of got through that by being in outpatient therapy like once a week with an eating disorder specialist and really learned a lot through that. Um, And then I kind of transitioned into like vegetarianism and veganism as a way to restrict what I was eating further down the line. So I was vegetarian for like four years, and then I was vegan for four years. And so I was always, pretty much always, since I got out of treatment, restricting something or exhibiting some sort of disordered behaviors around food Um, until COVID hit. And actually, I met my boyfriend and I stopped being vegan like a couple months before I met him. And it was really nice to be in a new romance where go out to dinner a lot you go to the movies you're getting popcorn you're getting ice cream and it was nice to just like not be vegan and be able to eat literally I was letting myself eat whatever I wanted for the first time in my life pretty much Um, and then the pandemic happened and it was really tough on me Um, we had just moved into a new house just moved in together so my first time living with a significant other just moved into a new house a week before the lockdowns happened and then I was struggling a lot with PTSD from the abuse, um, because I just really had never dealt with it. And I was just starting to see how it was affecting my brain. Um, so obviously within treatment and like the intensive outpatient, um, I was mostly focused on the eating disorder. Like I got, you know, some insight into what the abuse did, but not too much deeper into the abuse besides that. And so I was dealing with PTSD. Um, I was definitely dealing with a little bit of struggles with drinking. I think a lot of people were during the pandemic when we were locked down. It was just like, what else is there to do, what drink? And I gained a lot of weight and that has been really, really hard for me. I've honestly never lived in as big of a body as I am right now. And so it's kind of forcing me to think about my lifestyle, my relationship with food, my relationship with exercise, my relationship with alcohol, I mean, just everything it's been, you know, a struggle, to be honest, to just try to navigate through all these different things that are happening. And so I went to um, CPT therapy during the second year of the pandemic. So 2021, um, I started that and really focused on healing my PTSD. And with that, I kind of learned a lot of very valuable skills around just like, changing your thoughts, and not blaming myself for the weight gain, not blaming myself for the issues with alcohol, not blaming myself for all of these things, because I had the tools after I got discharged from that therapy program to where I could start to rethink what those thoughts actually would turn into from, like, a behavior perspective. Like, what am I going to do now that I've just thought this terrible thing about myself? Um, So it's obviously still work in progress, um, but I think that those two things kind of linked and combined and then dealing with the pandemic, which has been really, really hard for all of us on top of working, never taking any breaks from work and going through these really crazy life changes that are really huge, to be honest while trying to navigate like relationships with coworkers and people that you probably don't really want to know as much about your eating disorder or trauma that you've been through and childhood abuse and all of that stuff like it's something that I'm still working on to this day but I definitely feel like a stronger person because of it I definitely think that my I value my own perspective a lot more coming out of CPT therapy and just realizing all these things that I've kind of had to navigate through I mean really since I've been like six or eight years old it's been pretty
0: much my whole life so um yeah Wow I'm so proud of you for telling your story and the way that you told it um it's just so inspiring like I love the fact that you say graduated because you did and you know, I think being really honest about recovery is a long and bumpy road, right? And relapses happen, and just the tenacity and healing that you've shown um during this time that you know, we started this podcast, you're telling us about this amazing career story of internships. you know you weren't going through all of this at the same time or like around it, right? Um so it's a real story of hope for anyone listening who struggled with trauma or eating disorders or are on the road to recovery that you know you really don't know what is happening to for someone else especially as you said in the workplace or what's going on in their lives or in their past or the stuff that they're trying to struggle with um and you know that kind of being high functioning with an an an, an, an addiction or an eating disorder or um PTSD there are like multiple reasons that people might be acting in ways that you don't understand and I think this is a really important conversation you know not just around the food and the body image stuff and it's super important eating disorder aspects but also giving people grace and compassion and patience that you really need to give people a chance to can't even think how to describe this because it's none of your business right or someone who's going through but just bear it in mind that maybe what you think or the assumptions that you're making around someone and their behavior aren't the case at all and um, yeah. to act with compassion and unconditional positive regard that you know that's that's the case um, and I, yeah, I, I totally feel-
1: agree with you and I, I also want to add in there of just like leading with empathy too you know like not even leading as in like you're in a leadership position and you're a leader of others and like you're a manager or something but just if you notice something like something has changed with someone's personality or something might be a little bit off they're not acting how they normally act like lead with empathy and just ask like hey is everything okay I've noticed it you're not really yourself lately instead of turning it into like you know a negative thing or you know something where it's kind of shutting people down I think is really really important and I know, especially as women, we try to compartmentalize our work life and our personal life to the extreme, like to the point where it's like, you get work Alex and you get home Alex and those two never really mix. And I think through just the recent PTSD, like therapy program that I went through, I kind of have let myself relax off of doing that a little bit because I no longer see the value in not being vulnerable with my coworkers because I just realized that it's not worth it. You know, like it's not worth it because people w- are willing and most of the time will be willing to help you out, take some things off of your plate at work or just be a friend to you, even if they're coworkers. Like if they know that you're struggling with this stuff. And I've I've never asked for help. Like that's not <laughs> PTSD issues that I was having with the COVID and I was super, super depressed and I was acting, I mean, my behavior was just ridiculous to me. And I said to myself, like, I'm going to enroll myself in therapy. Nobody Mm -hmm. told me to do that. I didn't ask my family or friends for help. That's just how I've been my whole life. And so it's hard for me to kind of start letting the line blur a little bit between work Alex and, and home Alex, but I think it's invaluable to, you know, not go into details, but let people know I'm going through something right now. I really need a little bit of time with, you know, less capacity on my plate, or I really just needed you guys to know that I'm going through this thing. And if you could keep it in mind, don't worry. I could still do, get all my work done, but I'm just not feeling like myself lately. I think that goes so long (laughs) with people that, yeah. And they just, they really just, I think people appreciate it. And I think that they feel better about saying it about themselves too. If you start to create this culture of like, we can be open and honest to the point that we're comfortable and realize that it's not going to be a negative stain on our reputation or it's not going to change people's perception. There's not going to be judgment because everybody's leading with empathy and thinking about where someone else is coming from.
0: Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. But I just, the fact that authenticity is one of our community values i think you've demonstrated what that really means is you know not having to compartmentalize and be a work person and a real person being able to feel comfortable in spaces where those lines blur and you are just showing up as yourself like there's a a real i think onus on organizations being able to create those spaces of safety psychological safety inclusion, um, belonging where people feel like they can really show up as and full, full selves um and and it's it's quite it still feels like a rare thing so doesn't it like <laughs> because that yes. isn't the corporate yes. culture so so for people who've been through trauma or um, any other manner of um, impact on mental health like work, workplaces can feel very excluding where they're not led with empathy. And actually we're missing out on some incredible human beings in the workforce because uh, adjustments aren't made to help them feel included and and show up uh, as themselves and be authentic. And I think you made a really important point. Like there's a, a role modeling aspect to this where we need to see leaders showing up as themselves and saying, you know what, I'm having a really difficult time at home at the moment. So just so you know, like I'm gonna have to drop my capacity a little bit, or I need to go and be there for my my sick dad, or I need to go and take care of my mental health by starting to go to therapy appointments. The only way that any of this stuff is gonna become normalized is if we normalize it, right? And uh, the responsibility of, of leaders in, being the first ones to be authentic. Um, if that is, you know, something that you believe in as being a, a, a way of impacting the future of your organization and the world and creating more happiness, then, you know, if anyone's listening to this <laughs> who um, who can influence that and show up as themselves a bit more today, I think we'd encourage you to do that too, because that's how it makes it easier for people like us who've had, difficult times and sometimes our behavior is crazy, but it's because we've been triggered by something, not because we are crazy or we're bad or we're we've got attitudes. Um and you know, I I I don't want to have to just volunteer information about my past or my history or what I'm going through. But if you ask me with empathy and let me know I was safe to tell you then you would experience a very different
1: (laughs) yes I absolutely love
0: that you said that
1: because I I totally agree it's intimidating and a little bit backwards for the onus to be on the individual contributor or that the person that people think is acting differently or whatever to voluntarily offer that information because sometimes people just don't know how or even know if it will change anything or even know that people have noticed a change in their demeanor at work yeah. you know what I or mean? feel
0: safe to share that kind of information right. especially if right. like trust is something that's impacted by whatever's happened or happening mm-hmm. so yeah so right um so yeah. i just wanted to finish on this point because i'm sure our listeners <laughs> are mm-hmm. gonna be thinking um they got they, 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 the, the, um it's been an amazing episode without doubt but i just wanted to quickly say and I know I told you this before we started our recording today which was through our conversation that we had last week I opened up and I shared stuff about my issues with food that I have never shared with another human being that date back to my teenage years where I didn't get diagnosed with anorexia but my eating my disordered eating started way back then and you made me feel safe to be able to show up as myself in that moment And to be able to tell you that, um, and the conversation that went on that I didn't even know orthorexia was a thing, and it helped me to identify that the way that I go, um, full tilt with, um, dieting and programs, uh, aimed at losing weight and obsessively weighing myself. I hadn't even considered that that is that pattern repeating itself in what could be considered as you put in inverted commas, a more healthy way, but it is still disorder eating and then alex pointed me to a book that if anyone struggles with food in any way like i've also experienced binge eating disorder over the pandemic which resonated with me when we talked the other day and today that was a really difficult time and for me i turned to food and as someone who had issues with my own body image and weight and being in a larger body um to find myself coming out of the pandemic 15 kilos heavier was emotionally really difficult for me too. But this book is called intuitive eating and, and for me it was a complete game changer because um you know being comfortable in the bodies that we have here and now and today is the key to sustainable happiness in our bodies like they change they don't stay the same we're not going to be um the same size that we were before we had children or when we were at high school or whatever um and and eating intuitively is about being able to know, know your hunger cues, know when you're full, to give yourself this thing I'd never heard of, unconditional permission to eat. And when you were talking about going for ice cream with your boyfriend, that was just like, oh my God, like, I didn't <laughs> That was the first time it. I've given myself unconditional permission to, permission eat. to eat. And I recognized yeah. after reading this book and I told you that at the weekend, um, I've been like cutting carbs and being ravenously hungry most of the time because I'm on this orthorexic health program again. Or the way that I was treating it was when it isn't about that at all. I was like doing it my way because my brain was telling me that carbs are bad and the most important thing is a weight on the scale. And I gave myself unconditional permission to eat for the first time. And I think forever, because I can't remember ever doing that, where I listened and I tuned in and what my body really was craving. Wasn't the things that I would think, like Chinese food and chips, which is my normal go-to thing when I binge eat. It was actually yogurt and granola and fresh fruit compote. And I had this bowl of deliciousness and I savored it and I enjoyed every moment and it just felt good to eat. And I knew I'd had enough and it was just what I wanted. And then the next meal, deciding to go to the farm shop I just started picking the things that I wanted to eat and it was avocados and salad and fresh chicken and I was like hey mozzarella and normally I'd be like no no no, that's way too fatty I wouldn't have that in a salad it has to be plain and bland and boring and really unenjoyable <laughs> I came home and I made the salad and and the joy that I felt at giving myself unconditional permission to eat like I, I know that this is a you know, just a few days of having a life-changing experience but I just wanted to really thank you for that um and and you know if you'd not shown up as yourself that day when we had this pre-conversation felt safe to talk to me because i guess the culture that we've got in the community is a safe space like you wouldn't have um had that conversation with me i wouldn't have discovered this new thing that i didn't know about myself and be experiencing joy right now so i think all the messages that we've talked in the podcast kind of round off to that point you know the proof is here um and yeah creating safe spaces showing up as ourselves being willing to be vulnerable can really impact other people's lives so i just like thank you for today thank you for this thank you for everything that you're doing in the community and keep being yourself and showing up because i think you're freaking incredible
1: (laughs) thank you claire thank you so much for the opportunity and also i'm just honored that you shared all your you know experiences with me too as being the first person that you've shared stuff with i feel just a supreme amount of honor so I really appreciate it. I'm happy that we could do this and I really, really hope that it can help others. I know that there's so many different aspects of this and so many different, you know, just things to consider at work, at home, just wherever, even with ourselves. And so to have the opportunity to talk about it and hopefully, you know, help other people just really, really means the world to me. So
0: we already have i'm the first so thank you and <laughs> you're gonna make me emotional oh i know i see like super <laughs> emotional as well but keep being the role model keep being the change you want to see in the world you can't go wrong with that alex. So, like i said incredible inspiring woman in cx that's it for this week um we'll see you all next time bye for now bye alex bye thanks for listening to the women in cx podcast with me claire buskett's If you enjoyed the show, please drop us a like, subscribe and leave a review on whichever platform you're listening or watching on. And if you want to know more about becoming a member of the world's first online community for women in customer experience, please check out womenincx.community and follow the Women in CX page on LinkedIn. Join us again next time where I'll be talking to another awesome community member about leveraging data and metrics to drive decision making and evidence ROI of CX initiatives. See you all next time.